Good evening. Welcome to the Critical Hour. We're coming to you from the capital of the United States of America, Washington, D.C., here on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, political scientist, author, and nationally syndicated columnist, Dr. Wilmer Lee, and I'm joined here by my co-host, political analyst, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. For the next two hours, we will explore and analyze the salient news stories that are impacting the global village in which we live. Orinoco Tribune has a piece entitled, Ukrainian shelling of Zaporozhye nuclear site may lead to catastrophe. Kiev is flirting with disaster by shelling hydroelectric facility servicing the Zaporozhye nuclear plant. For insight into this, let's turn to our first guest. He's a Moscow-based international relations and security analyst, Mark Schloboda. As always, Mark, welcome back. Dr. Leon Garland, thanks for having me. It's always an honor and a pleasure to be on the critical hour. So talk about this uh, hydroelectric facility that's located in the Kherson region in southern Ukraine. Uh, It was seized by Russian forces in the early stages of the military operation. Uh, together with the Russia-controlled Zaporozhye nuclear plant, the biggest in Europe. It has been attacked by Ukrainian troops with use of Western-supplied weapons. Mark Shloboda. Yeah, okay. So um, besides just the Kiev regime uh, shelling and drone attacks on the Zaporozhye nuclear power plant itself, They have also launched attacks on a nearby uh, dam, a hydroelectric facility, which is important for supplying cooling water uh, uh, to the reactors um, at the Zaporozhye nuclear power plant. So um, if there was severe damage to this plant, then that could possibly prevent uh, present problems uh, maintaining cooling at the plant. So it is a secondary concern to the attacks on the plant itself, but uh, important nonetheless. And we have seen uh, shelling attacks uh, on the hydroelectric power station uh, by the Kiev regime for um, uh, sporadically over the last month. Uh, and they have done some small damage uh, taking out um, hydroelectric unit number three uh, in March. Um, uh, repairs for that will be extensive and and will take time, uh, perhaps more than a year. Um, The most recent attacks uh, have mostly been intercepted by Russian air defense and have not done uh, any significant damage to the plant. But um, it appears that uh, occasionally the regime forces are still trying. So it is another area of concern besides just the attacks on the plant itself. Russia recently has been saying that Kiev was set on an attack provocation during the U.N. chief's visit. What are your thoughts on, you know, the attack, if there would be a step up an attack and what the, the motive would be or the plan to even do something like this that would cause, you know, basically disaster throughout Eastern Europe? Yeah. Okay. So the the whole point of this is to create some type of international incident, right? A big incident that will increase Western focus uh, and uh, financial aid and military supplies uh, to the Kiev regime, which the regime feels is failing. And and there is uh, some evidence of that. For instance, in July, 
the EU uh, committed during the entire month committed to no new military supplies uh, to Ukraine um, after months of doing so. And part of this may be due to political disagreements and fatigue and other parts of this may be simply that they have um, given everything to the Kiev regime that they can without deeply cutting into their own supplies. Uh, but the Kiev regime feels this attention, this support is waning. They're trying to create some type of major international incident. The arrival of the UN Secretary General is seen as an opportunity to exploit. Um, there are a number of uh, targets within the plant, uh, you know, short of a direct attack on the reactor, which stood, could create such an incident, such as uh, if attacks manage to penetrate the steel and concrete containers that hold spent nuclear fuel, creating something like a dirty bomb effect. Um, if um, Ukrainian shelling or drone attacks took out um, the electricity supplies or the aforementioned uh, cooling water uh, via the uh, nearby hydroelectric dam, um, there, there are still backup measures in place. Um, there, there are multiple redundant systems, including emergency diesel generators and everything. But whenever you're going into a um, situation where you are relying on emergency measures, then um, that puts it in a, a, a more dangerous situation because – Measures, safety measures can fail. You can have multiple redundant safety measures fail. It's unlikely, but when you're dealing with something like a nuclear power plant where something like a meltdown mimicking what happens, say, at Fukushima could expect, uh, affect large swaths of Europe, it's best not to play around. And uh, like I said, the, the visit of the Secretary General provides just such an occasion where world attention is focused there. Um, and according what uh, what seems to be obviously Russian intelligence, um, and this seems to be confirmed by uh, movements of the Kiev regime's artillery forces, they seem to be lining up, or at least did seem to be lining up for such an attack. Hopefully, the Russian exposure uh, of this attempted, you know, uh, false flag, which would be blamed on Russia, uh, is enough to avert it. Moving beyond the nuclear issue, if the Kiev uh, forces were successful in attacking the hydroelectric facility, what would the breaching of that dam do to the surrounding area in terms of water? I'm thinking about if they were to bomb the Hoover Dam or if they were to bomb the Grand Coulee Dam, what all of that water flow would do to the lower-lying areas. So is there any concern that if this hydroelectric dam is breached, that that could cause a catastrophe of another nature? Sure. I'm. The, it's not quite the same situation as okay. the Hoover Dam, which is a little bit larger, and and uh, you know uh, the underlying areas uh, uh, would be more affected. Mm -hmm. But it certainly presents, and we have to remember that the Kiev regime has already blown up their own dams before to flood areas around Kiev. Um, uh, you know, uh, in order to help complicate uh, the the rushing holding maneuver around Kiev at the time. Now, 
um, that flooded towns uh, as well. Mm -hmm. But that was regarded as a type of scorched earth policy that was worth it for the military uh, complications it caused Russian forces. That's certainly something that could be considered here. A safe measure for Russia at this point would be to shut down uh, all or at least most of the reactors uh, at the plant. The problem here is that this plant surprised 20% of Ukraine's electricity. Uh, a whole fifth, uh, not only to Russia-controlled areas in the south, but it continues to supply electricity to regime-governed areas. And uh, a loss of electricity to one uh, you know, fifth of Ukraine uh, would uh, cause a whole host of other problems uh, that would result in civilian deaths anyway. I mean, people in hospitals and, and, and so forth that, that uh, you know, depend on electricity, uh, their lives uh, could be put at risk you know, in medical conditions and something like this. Uh, so Russia is loath to do this, and they know that if they shut the plant down, they will be blamed for the loss of electricity to to you know a good chunk of the Ukraine on top of this so there are multiple things and risks for civilians uh, for the Russian government to consider here uh, during these attacks. Have you been reading anything lately? I'm just starting to see it about Russia and China looking to possibly normalize relations with North Korea. Yes. Um, I I have seen that, um, and it is um, something that North Korea has quite obviously been doing a charm offensive with Russia. Um, they have made the offer of sending uh, reportedly 100,000 troops uh, uh, to Ukraine uh, to assist. Of course, Russia is not going to accept those troops. It does not need, uh, and it would be a, a, a rather strange situation uh, for you know Russia's winning the hearts and minds of, of at least some of the Ukrainian populace uh, to, to explain why there's 100,000 North Korean <laughs> troops wandering around their country. But it, it, it certainly, uh, they've also offered to send some uh, work to help with the reconstruction of cities that have been devastated uh, by the conflict and now going on for eight years, but, you know, escalating recently uh, in the Donbass. And, and there's some indication that, that that might be more welcome. So that is encouraging, uh, you know, uh, certainly uh, it, it's, it's a kind of charm offensive that North Korea is, is hoping uh, to have improved relations with Russia and China out of this. Um, that uh, both Russia and China have, have to various degrees acquiesced to Western pressure uh, because uh, – in part because of North Korea's nuclear program, uh, but uh, other reasons as well, which include forestalling a more serious – U.S. attack on North Korea. Um, you know, if you give them a little bit, there's the hope that the U.S. will calm down and not launch a major attack. But that has failed in several situations in the past, such as in Libya. And so what does that improving relationship do to the dynamics in the Asian region as it relates to South Korea and Japan? Um well, I mean, it certainly uh, complicates relations. The, the, the previous uh, South Korean government was very keen on uh, improving relations right. uh, with North Korea and peace. The current one, less so. Uh, needless to say. And there have just been major U.S.-South Korean military drills on the North Korean border. Um, 
but it would dramatically improve North Korea's trade relations um, with China uh, and uh, with Russia, which would alter the economic balance in the area. Right. And, and North Korea has a lot of rare minerals. Do you know anything? I throw a lot of stuff at you, but Russia is apparently sending some hypersonic jets with hypersonic missiles to Kaliningrad. Kaliningrad. Yes. Um, so, I mean, Russia... Yeah, Russia has sent various measures. There are reports that Russia has sent Iskanders previously as a response uh, to uh, NATO's expansion previously. This will be seen as a deterrent measure um, uh, to uh, forestall uh, any uh, uh, NATO attempts um, at uh, military action during uh, the Russia's intervention in Ukraine. They would be behind the lines of normal air defense and thus present an, an extraordinary level of threat that Western military planners often talk about, the Kaliningrad problem. Mark Schlaboda, as always, thank you so much for your time. Greatly, greatly appreciate that analysis, and we look forward to having you back. Thanks for having me. Folks, you're listening to the Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to the Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. The South China Morning Post has a piece entitled, Chinese Troops to Join Russian Military Drills as Tensions Grow with U.S. The People's Liberation Army, the PLA, will send troops to take part in a Russia-led military exercise in a show of closer ties and military strength amid rising tensions with the U.S. Well, Garland, the folks in the Pentagon can't be happy about this one. For insight, let's turn to our next guest. He's a retired from a uh, global advisory services firm where he advised clients on their China strategies and business operations. He was educated at MIT, Stevens Institute, and Santa Clara University. He is the founder and former managing director of International Strategic Alliances, and he is George Koo, as always, George Welcome back. Thank you. Nice to be back with you, folks. So this will be the second large drill that both Russia and China have joined this year in a show of partnership, which President Xi Jinping and his counterpart Vladimir Putin declared had no limits in February. Then last year, Russia was invited to northwest China for a strategic exercise involving more than 10,000 troops. It was the first time a foreign army had taken part in a PLA strategic exercise in China. George, I think we have to look at this in a much, much now, in a much, much, much broader context. And as I said in the open, the Pentagon cannot be happy about this. Yeah, well, the, uh, um, they've had, Russia and China have, have had a history of joint military exercise. Uh, I think one of the very significant ones that was recent was actually in the, in the high seas around Japan, which, of course, did not make uh, the Japanese very happy 
Um, I, I, I think the other significant thing about in this South China Morning Post is that India sent troops to participate in this exercise as well, which makes it very interesting because India and China heretofore hasn't been exactly buddy buddies, and yet they're both participating in this exercise. I, I'm I'm a, I'm no expert. In fact, I'm the opposite of being an expert when it comes to military exercises. And um, uh, to my way of thinking, military exercises is a practice, uh, practice together, saying that we're on the same team if if and when we go to war. I would just a way of getting used to how we do things and how we how we practice the command system and and of course it's a public declaration that um that we are in it together um not necessarily opposing uh any particular nation or faction but the implications are very clear right so um so that's that's to me is a significance of this latest exercise is one on top of many. It's increasing in frequency. And as I say, the more interesting part on this one is that you actually have a number of other nations participating, including India. So it's India, China, Russia, plus some others jointly practicing together. Uh, George, you know, one of the things I've been thinking about recently, and we've been talking about this here, yeah. and I'd like to run it by you. I think that for Russia and China, both looking at the current circumstance with the U.S. so-called confronting them yeah. and China being, let's say, reserved as regarding their reaction to the uh, Pelosi incident, I think that Russia and China realize that it doesn't serve them to get into a military conflict with the U.S., that they're both economically and diplomatically, they're on the rise, and that the U.S. is basically trying to, like, pick a fight with them, and that part of this may be we're going to show we're together, we're going to demonstrate, look, we'll fight together, back off, kind of like an elbow to brush the U.S. off. And that I think I really believe the U.S., excuse me, that China and Russia see their place as they want to pick a fight with us. Time is on our side. We're on the uprising. They're falling. They want to fight. We don't. And that this is part of demonstrating their, you know, hey, we're robust. We're tough militarily. So back off in a way to avoid a conflict rather than invite one. Your thinks. Yeah. What do you think? Yeah, yeah. I think I think you're right on. It's, uh, you know, this is this is our might. This is our strength. And if you want to take us on, you know, you do so at your own peril. And furthermore, uh, I think what China will and Russia will do is to find the higher moral ground and say, okay, if you want to start something, you're going to pay. But we will be fully justified to um, to reply, and and we we saw that in the uh, military exercise that the Pe- People's Liberation Army you know undertook by going around uh, Taiwan in response to Pelosi's visit, and and it showed very clearly to the world, if not and and to the people of Taiwan, is that you provoke us and you step over the line. We will do what we need to do to respond. And what they have done, what China has done in this case, is to break the rule that they had imposed. And now their naval ships can go anywhere around Taiwan. They can go within, inside the 12-mile limit. They can shoot at anything they want to shoot. 
at any time they want. And that's a real practice run on 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 invading and taking over Taiwan. And I think the people in Taiwan are fully, fully aware of what's going on. And the joint exercise with Russia is also sending a message to you know to Japan as well as the U.S. that uh, better, better, better watch what you're doing. Be careful. <laughs> also, just to put a final point on this, and that is when you look at the nature of their militaries. Their militaries, in my opinion, are designed to be defensive, not offensive. That's one thing. Yeah. The next point there is these joint military exercises, when taken in the context of the joint statements that both presidents have released, saying basically the unipolar arrangement is over and we're here now to support a more just, prudent, multipolar world— and the new currency that they're developing. You can even, I think, throw in the, the Chinese space station that China has launched. There are a number of different elements here in different areas that are indicating the unipolar structure is done. Uh, uh, yes, in, indeed. And, and, and I think the, the, dis, the dis, disintegration of the Unipolar world uh, actually began when um, when we pulled out of Afghanistan after 20 years of uh, useless war, and and it's telling the the, the whole world that uh, the American forces are not so strong and mighty after all. And so that's already the beginning. Now, I had I have one comment in, in regard to the exercise being you know defensive in nature which I think is true. But an interesting development to look for is that apparently China is going to hold a joint military exercise with some of the Latin American countries off the coast of um, uh, South America uh, sometime in the future. I forgot if they've actually designated a date yet or not. But that sure, that sure um, would... Um, tear the Monroe Doctrine uh, all to pieces, and it would give a bit of a quid pro quo type of a signal to the uh, to Washington. Yeah, here's something. There's an article that just came out today. It's kind of late, but I want to throw it at you and see what you think. Yeah. It's in RT. No longer a pariah. Russia and China could be about to normalize North Korea and leave the U.S. with another Asian headache. Your thoughts, and I think that's good. My history of looking at North Korea is to say the U.S. is like, why, they're paranoid. Well, you surround them with bases and threaten them all the time. That ain't paranoia. But at any rate, what are your thoughts? I think that's an interesting move to see China and North Korea. North Korea has a lot of resources, a lot of technology, a lot of things to to offer. What are your thoughts on North Korea becoming part of the team, as it were? Well, North Korea needs that very badly. They really, you know, whether it's by choice or by the uh, American policy, became so-called, quote-unquote, a hermit kingdom with no benefit of economic exchange or collaboration with anybody else. I think they have been heretofore very dependent on the trade that they have with China, which keeps them going. 
but certainly anything that will enlarge the the scope of their uh, participation in the world is good for North Korea, but is also good for the world because presumably and hopefully that will uh, promote and prevent promote exchange and prevent the hostility, the chip on the shoulder that they seem to have. And and I, I would like to take the opportunity to remind everybody that during the at the end of the Clinton administration, the US and North Korea were very close to having an agreement where North Korea would stand down and not develop further their nuclear weapon uh, development. And at that time, they didn't have a nuclear bomb. But George W. ignored what Clinton administration has done. And this is very clearly written by Bill Perry's book. Bill Perry was the former Secretary of Defense under Clinton, and he he led the, the, uh, the discussion with North Korea and, and, and the stand down never came through because George W. decided North Korea is one of the three axes of evil and didn't continue to finish that particular, uh, did not honor the agreement and ignored North Korea for three years. And at the end of three years, he sent an emissary to North Korea with the typical American arrogance and exceptionism. He didn't go there to resume discussion. He went there to lecture the North Koreans about um, what they are obligated to do, nothing about what the Americans or the South Korea or Japan was going to do. And guess what? Three years after that, in 2006, was when North Korea detonated the first uh, atomic bomb. And that's when North Korea discovered that if, he, if they can get a bomb and they can get a missile to deliver the bomb, they have leverage, which they didn't have before. And that's where we've been ever since. And you talk about lecturing the North Koreans. That sounds a lot like Tony Blinken lecturing the Chinese in Anchorage, Alaska. Just as we wrap to Garland's point about this op-ed about Russia and China could be about to normalize with North Korea, it's a picture of Putin and Kim Jong-un. Putin was described as authoritarian, Crazy, Kim Jong-un, authoritarian, crazy, (laughs) Xi Jinping, authoritarian, Hugo Chavez, authoritarian, Maduro. So all of these crazy authoritarians have now formed a block. (laughs) The world now is being run by crazy people, if, if you listen to the U.S. narrative. Well, okay. So you, you you're talking about the crazy guys as a reflection of the of the Western point of view, exactly. Right. Yeah, which is obviously uh, unbiased and objective, <laughs> and fair, and down the middle, and, uh, and and we should all pay attention to it. Um, you know, our policy coming out of Washington is actually forcing and pushing those who are designated to be crazy and irrational to get together and 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 combine their forces to be able to stand up to the the hegemon uh, of this world namely the united states so um we basically whatever it is that we're doing um we're forced and we're bringing it all on ourselves and of course as uh, as the uh, our opponents 
as they band together, they get stronger. They put their economic might and their military might together. Uh, and they're putting us in a much weaker position at, with, with time. And, and we're not doing anything to help ourselves because we're insisting that our adversaries and our anim- enemies, and they will continue to be so, and they will continue to be the crazy, irrational uh, forces that we're, uh, we're, we're up against. George Koo, as always, yeah. thank you so much for your time. We appreciate that analysis. We look forward to having you back. Thanks very much. Nice talking to you all. All right, George. Folks, you're listening to the Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Lee, and I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. Economists fear Fed minutes show central bank bent on unleashing mass unemployment. The newly released minutes of the Federal Reserve's July meeting indicate that U.S. central bank officials have no plans to deviate from aggressive interest rate hikes as they attempt to tamp down high inflation, a policy response that one economist characterized as a commitment to unleashing mass unemployment. How concerned should we be? Well, for insight, let's turn to our next guest. He's an associate professor of economics at the University of Missouri, Kansas City, former president of the National Economics Association, Dr. Linwood Tahid. As always, sir, welcome back. Thank you. So, Published minutes yesterday of the July 26th and 27th policy meeting show that the nation's central bankers judged that inflation would respond to monetary policy tightening and the associated moderation in economic activity with a delay and would likely stay uncomfortably high for some time. The minutes read, participants also observed that in some product categories, the rate of price increase could well pick up further in the short term with sizable additional increases in residential rental expenses being exceptionally likely. This takes us right to the discussion that we've had on this show for a year. If we have a supply side problem and not a demand problem, how will monetary policy tightening solve the problem? Dr. Tahid. The, the answer is not only does it not solve the problem, it makes the problem worse. Uh, when you, when the Federal Reserve increases interest rates in order to decrease demand, it does that. It can do that very well. But, but that also decreases supply because it makes it more expensive for businesses to expand their operations. And so when you have a supply-side problem like we have now, not a demand-side problem, the, what increasing interest rates brings down demand but also brings down supply, and you end up with an economy that is, that is um, um, uh, fixed at the lower supply level and and what that means is that 
uh, that um, um, as demand goes down, people lose their jobs, money stops circulating in the economy. But, but there's no incentive to increase demand until you end up with an economy with higher uh, unemployment. And, uh, yes, you may, you may tackle inflation, but you have what we call stagflation. Uh, you have a situation in which uh, high interest rates have led to high unemployment rates. Now, now from uh, what the, um, uh, the analysis of the Federal Reserve minutes of the last meeting, uh, the Fed chairs are, are the governors are very well aware of what they are doing. Uh, they know that increasing interest rates will lead to increased unemployment. Uh, the Fed Reserve, as most people don't know, has actually two mandates. One mandate is to fight inflation. The other mandate is to maintain full employment. That, that mandate was put in place by the Humphrey Hawkins Act in 1978. But the Fed is always focused on inflation and not unemployment. They are biased towards fighting inflation. And so uh, they're doing what they, what they can only do, increase interest rates, uh, which will um, uh, tackle inflation perhaps, but will also in increase unemployment. Uh, right now, the inflation rate, the consumer price index is at uh, 8.5%. It's down from 9.1%, so what they're doing has probably helped. But in order to get down to their target of 2%, uh, just by a simple estimate, they would have to raise the interest rates another 11%, which gets it, of course, in, into the 15%, uh, the, 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 uh, the 13 to 15% range, uh, which would be a disaster. Here's the first thing I think. Sonny Bono or a Qui Bono. How's that that? Somebody with Bono. Who, who benefits? And when I look at this, I say, well, let me see. The Federal Reserve is owned by a bunch of big banks. And if you raise interest rates, banks benefit. Billionaires who own these houses and own these places that they rent out benefit. And now you have a person who can't qualify to buy a house, but they're renting at more than it would cost for a mortgage. When I look at what they're doing, it seems to me, ultimately, the banks benefit, the wealthy benefit, that this is another example like 2008 and COVID, wherein a disaster is created. And in this instance, a man-made disaster, although COVID, we could have that discussion too, a man-made disaster is created through economic policy, and what do you know? The rich still benefit, Doctor Tawhid. Yes, I mean it's uh, it, we should we should dis disabuse ourselves of the idea that everybody is suffering as we bring down inflation. Um, um, uh, as, you know, inflation inflation is a, uh, a, a certainly benefits um, uh, those who have loans that they have to pay back. Uh, but increasing interest rates makes makes it more expensive for for those who might want to borrow to buy a house. Therefore, they can't do that. Want to borrow to buy a car? They they can't do that. Uh, and in the process of uh, since people have to live somewhere, uh, if they can't buy a house, become homeowners, they have to rent. And and rental rates are are, are skyrocketing as a result of well. I won't say as a result just of inflation, but as a result of the opportunity to increase rates uh, and to blame it on inflation. And so, um, you know, Wall Street is after uh, a year of being down because of, of inflation is now rallying 
because because uh, the uh, interest rates are going to increase uh, unemployment. And when unemployment is increased, then there's more competition for jobs. People are willing to take the same jobs that they used to have at less money. This is a process that we call disciplining labor. You know, labor labor in the U.S. and around the world has become more emboldened. We have more uh, labor actions, more strikes, more forming of unions. And uh, by, by pushing unemployment into the economy, uh, we actually uh, begin to halt that power of labor. Uh, Wall Street benefits in, in the long run from that. And continuing along the same line of discussion, voters demand Biden take action to address national crisis of rising housing costs. The progressive think tank Data for Progress surveyed a number of likely voters and found that 51 percent believe Biden should take executive action to alleviate the burden caused by rising housing costs, since this is a national crisis and it will provide immediate relief for people facing skyrocketing rents. So we have this rent moratorium has passed. Now rents are going up through the roof into what Garland was talking about earlier. People can't afford to buy houses because interest rates are going up. They're moving over to the rental side and evictions are up. Mm -hmm. This is a mess and it seems to be of our own creation. Yes, uh, the the same uh, financial institutions that um, are evicting people because uh, they um, can't pay their their mortgages, uh, still own the houses. And so they they, they turn those houses over into rental properties. And uh, the median rental rate in the U.S. is now over $2,000 per month. That's median. That means that more than half of the rentals in the U.S. are are priced at over $2,000 per month, and that's the first time that has happened. And so uh, when when um, mortgage holders, finance companies, evict people out of houses, they, they get to, 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 to charge uh, inflated uh, rental rates, which is, which is better than uh, having a, a mortgage payment. And so there's, there's, the, there's this cyclical and, and systematic process of, of causing evictions, uh, increase in evictions, leading to um, increase in rental rates as well. Um, the Supreme Court, of course, uh, in uh, August of 2021, uh, ruled that the, um, the, the, the eviction moratorium was, was uh, unconstitutional. And so since that time, eviction rates have been increasing, uh, rental rates have been increasing. And, um, you know, rental rates aren't going up because the cost of the house is, is increasing. Um, um, uh, that house is already owned. Rental rates are going up because landlords can charge more. They can charge more because there's increased demand because of increased eviction. So this is a, a systematic process that that requires that the federal that a a more powerful entity than the uh, than the rental industry intervene and put caps on 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 evictions and also put caps on on rental rates. Congress passed a reconciliation bill this week, and they didn't go with the expanded child tax credit. What can you tell us about that, uh, Dr. Tawheed? Right. The expanded child tax credit, which was part of the American Recovery Act, um, gave uh, 250 to $300 per child per month 
for 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 families that that ended in uh, December of 2021, and so uh, that that uh, it was estimated that that additional 250 to 300 dollars per month uh, lifted 30 percent of children out of poverty. Well, of course, when that stopped in January of this year, those those 30 percent of children went back into poverty. Uh, the child tax credit, the expanded child tax credit, was, I guess, the most successful program uh, that has ever been implemented in, the, in this country, perhaps uh, except for Social Security and, and um, uh, those those payments to lift people out of poverty. And uh, the uh, the Congress did not extend it. Uh, then uh, they did not extend it in this in this uh, package. It was part of the, uh, the the expanded the larger Build Back Better plan. But for some reason, it did not get back into this into this um, uh, Inflation Reduction Act. Uh, this and uh, that that means that those those children who were pushed back into poverty are still are still there. That to me speaks volumes because two hundred and fifty to three hundred dollars a month in the greater scheme of a budget doesn't seem to be a lot of money when you're talking about raising a child out of poverty. So if you don't do it on the tax credit side, it seems as though it would be very, very easy to do it on the service providing side, if that makes sense. Yes, that uh, that's that uh, two hundred fifty three hundred dollars per month uh, totaled uh, about sixty million per month in the federal budget. Uh, we're, we're talking millions here, and even right. if we extend that over over twelve twelve months. That's still uh, less than uh, less than seven hundred, uh, about seven hundred uh, uh, million dollars, and and in these uh, in this Inflation Reduction Act and other acts, we've been talking about billions of dollars and trillions of dollars. This mm-hmm. is this would be a drop in the bucket to 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 bring those thirty percent of children back out of poverty, uh, but the Democrats lost the opportunity to do that. They've got bigger fish to fry. Here's an article right here. CHIPS Act passes. House approves $280 billion bill to boost microchip production to counter China. And keep in mind, last year they passed $250 billion. So that's half a trillion, $530 billion over a 14-month period to, quote, counter China with chips or something like that, but we can't afford a few million dollars for, you know, poor people and their children. They meant potato chips. Oh! See, you thought it meant computer chips. Those are some expensive go, potato chips. Go ahead, Lynn. <laughs> One minute. Uh, yeah, I understand that Intel uh, just announced that they were not going to invest uh, some billions of dollars into creating uh, jobs in the U.S. And, in fact, they are opening up a, a, a plant in Malaysia. This is after they they receive their their money from the from the federal government to to increase chip production. <laughs> so 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 that money is not increasing jobs in the U.S. I think it's nine thousand jobs that are being created in Malaysia. Uh, we, we we've seen this happen before, where money goes to corporations to do things in the U.S. and they use that to buy back stocks or mm-hmm. to in, in, in increase their 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 productivity somewhere else where there's cheap labor. Uh, we've gone through this before. We've been duped again. Sounds like a scam to me, Dr. Linwood Tahid. As always, sir, thank you so much for your time. Greatly, greatly appreciate it. We look forward to having you back. Thank you, sir. You're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. 
We are back, and you're listening to the Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. Orinoco Tribune has a piece, How Russia Thwarted U.S. Imperial Plans in Ukraine and Beyond. History testifies time and time again that the United States and Europe have always viewed Russia as coveted prey and more so as a powerful opponent to their expansionist pretensions. Without a doubt, for various reasons that we will detail later, Russia has today become the top geopolitical military threat to Western hegemonic aspirations. For insight into this, we turn to our next guest. He's a political activist, independent journalist and podcaster, Nico House. As always, Nico, welcome back. As always, it's great to be back, gentlemen. It's a great Orinoco Tribune piece. I would take issue with saying that Russia has become the top geopolitical military threat. I would say Russia and China have basically ended the game. Your thoughts, Nico House. I think, uh, like they say in that Toyota truck commercial, game over. Yeah. Yeah. Also, well, so first of all, I, I don't really like phrasing it as if Russia's a military threat, because for the most part, uh, if you look at the accurate history of the geopolitical um, arena for the last maybe 100 years, almost all of Russia's maneuvers militaristically have been defensive. Right. It's always mm-hmm. been in response to aggression, usually from the West or from the U.S. specifically um, or NATO. So, like, I don't really like saying like that they're they're the threat. If anything, they ensure that the the Western or NATO threat, uh, you know, kind of stays at bay. And, they, and and that's that's not even recent. And I, I know, like, maybe people because of what's happening right now are starting to kind of acknowledge just how strong Russia is. But like. I mean, I hate to use this corny cliche, but literally Rome was not built in a day. Do you think they just came out of nowhere? No, Russia has always been probably the biggest quote-unquote threat to Western imperialism. Like, if you go and look at the the history of Cecil Rhodes, this is written about in the New York Times in 1912, or excuse me, 1902, actually. Like, Russia was always Great Britain in the United States' biggest economic and military competition. World War One was started to stop Russia and Germany, but mostly to stop Russia. We funded the Bolshevik Revolution because it's easier to overthrow governments during transitions of power. Now, we didn't account for Stalin, you know, kind of overruling Trotsky's, um, you know, his um, entitlement to the throne, if you will. But, like, yeah, that was the point of the, us funding the Bolshevik Revolution. We balkanized Russia because they were the biggest threat. So this isn't new. This, I just feel like... Now it's coming full circle for what we did to the Soviet Union, which is uh, infiltrate them, uh, economically cripple them, and then break them up. Yeah, you know, and I think when you look at it, what's going on now, this business about, you know, threats, period. You know, China's a threat, Russia's a threat, blah, blah, blah. And when it comes down to it, what it means is this. You go back to the Wolfowitz Doctrine. The people who run those countries are trying to make the lives of their citizens better. They're trying to raise, and they have been very, both countries have been very successful over the last 20 years of raising the standards of living for their people. They've invested in infrastructure. They've done things that, God forbid, the United States used to do under FDR, right? Those kinds of things. And as a result, their country's increasing. And the U.S. looks at it and says, wow, your economy's increasing, your military potential's increasing, your people are better off. Uh-oh, that's a problem. We want you to be impoverished and below us. And those countries are simply saying, it ain't going to happen. 
That was the rationale that the United States and Britain used in 1953 to overthrow Mossadegh in Iran. He wanted to revalue the price of Iranian oil so that he could raise the standard of living for Iranian citizens. And the Royal Dutch Shell went to the United States and said, we need you to help us overthrow this guy. We did the same thing in Guatemala in the late 50s when Guatemala wanted to revalue the price of their land and charge United Fruit Company higher taxes on land that was lying fallow. They weren't even using it to increase the standard of leaving in people in Guatemala. Go ahead. I have actually an ongoing theory that the entire Banana Republic scandal was actually about uh, the Cold War and weaponizing the protein in bananas is actually um, potassium. It, it goes through a process called um, annihilation, which can be weaponized. And we had tried to recreate the process, but it was too efficient. The only way we could recreate it successfully was to extract the, the potassium C from bananas. So, yeah, fun fact. In case anybody was wondering why we were, like, obsessed with bananas for a little bit there, that was probably why. <laughs> anyway, but I, I, I agree with you. I agree with you 100%. Like, it's, this is a tactic that we've been trying to use. Not, I mean, Venezuela, we look at that. Like the moment that you mm-hmm. become, you, you, you try to become economically diversified. Um, now, I will say the only exception to that rule uh, was China. That's what, that, the China situation is kind of peculiar to me because it's always been up and down. But even uh, um, um, not Xi Jinping, the, the, Mao, Mao was actually like, he was like working with Yale for a while. And he worked closely with the United States at times. So the whole China situation is a little bit more up and down for me. But Russia has consistently had to defend itself, defend itself against Western aggression. And, like, I feel that that's made Russia very, very smart. It's almost like when you're a kid growing up through adversity, like, of course, you're going to be a little bit more witty. You're going to be a little bit more aware and you're going to prepare in advance because, you know, like you just know to expect anything and, 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 you know, you hope for the best, but you always prepare for the worst because that's what the U.S. put Russia through. So this is what, what we're seeing right now. In my, I said this whenever this entire situation popped up. I said, yo, this is an inevitability. I don't know what y'all think is going to happen, but the U.S. is not coming out on top here. Like, you're just not going to. And then the moment that just, it just took Saudi Arabia for me. When they were like, yeah, y'all can go after yourselves. We're not getting involved in this. Have fun. That was it for me. Because that means you have no more control. No matter how much oil, no matter how many people owe you money, et cetera, et cetera, no matter how symbiotic your economy may have been with China, you have no control. Nobody fears you anymore. And I think that's important, that last thing you said, nobody fears you anymore. Add that to something else. And I think a lot of the developing countries, the Africa and the South Americas, looking at this and they're saying, you know, under the U.S.'s system, the so-called rules-based order, these things worked out disastrously for us. Mm -hmm. They've been abused. They've had their resources taken. And now they're seeing an option where they can possibly be an equal partner, where there's a new coalition that says we'll loan you money in a fair way. We'll build infrastructure. We'll work together and we won't overthrow your governments. (laughs) So I think one of the things the U.S didn't see coming, it thought, well, Africa and South America, they're scared of us, so they'll just go right along with us and sanction Russia. And they were like, oh, no, we, 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 no, we ain't doing that, bro. It's not, yeah, that's not yeah, going to work was... for us. Your thoughts? <laughs> yeah, no, it, it's funny that they, and you could tell Biden and the, the entire foreign policy establishment was caught off guard 
by these countries not bending the knee, if you will. Like, and in fact, it's actually playing out in Africa, especially where like nobody's actually been talking about this, but like leaders have been getting assassinated and overthrown uh, in countries where they're worried that they'll end up becoming um, economically tied to China. Not as much Russia, because Russia doesn't actually get involved all that much in Africa. But like, I would say though, though, like uh, the only issue that I've been having with China's involvement in this entire situation is some of the way they're going about their business in the Caribbean and in Africa, because I feel like there is not being enough, um, there's not there's not enough leeway for these countries to be self-determined economically. And like, sometimes it's good to be able to get a loan or whatever. But like, my issue is that a lot of this is Hong Kong involved in Africa. It isn't mainland China, which is a big difference for mm-hmm. those of you, you know, who understand international politics. And we have to remember that there's never been a foreign power, foreign superpower, economic, military, or otherwise, that has gone to Africa with altruistic intentions, regardless of the situation. So I, even though I would never compare China to the U.S. as far as just imperialism is concerned, but it's, I would like to see more self-determination allowed with these countries because, like, a lot of them don't need loans. They have the resources. Just let them use their own resources. But they're being put in situations where you have a good cop and bad cop between the U.S. and China, and that I do not – I don't really like it because we've already seen how this goes. Well, we know that as of last year there were, what, eight – coups in African countries, Mm -hmm. most of them in areas that are commanded by AFRICOM. Mm -hmm. And to your point about resources, I would say that a lot of this has to do with changing the, not the development model, but changing the production model so that the products that are being produced from these resources are produced in the countries of extraction instead of the resource being extracted at pennies on the dollar and the finished product being sold on the international market Mm -hmm. for tens of thousands of dollars. Yeah, yeah, which, uh, you know, it's it's not necessarily, like I said, it's not necessarily a bad thing. Like the transition, unfortunately for Africans, like how much choice do they have, right? But I guess like that's, that's part of my issue is that they they don't have a choice in a lot of these matters, and I feel like we just have to kind of keep that in context when we're talking about this because a lot of people just, oh, no, Africa's fine. Like, they're being given loans, and da, da, da. but, like, austerity has been used by superpowers to have control through one means or another in, in developing countries, and we just have to kind of always be cognizant of that because a lot of the times we don't figure it out until it's too late. But And we also have to be cognizant that, like, Hong Kong and China, mainland China are not the same place, but a lot of the time it gets conflated and so, like, there's a situation right now, oh, man, I wish I could remember which country it is. I want to say it's, like, Nigeria or Kenya. I want to say it's Kenya. Like, there's a their company working with France, a Chinese company working with France uh, for a pipeline, an oil pipeline. And there's, like, this big protest. And everybody, like, a lot of leftists are defending it. But, at the, but they didn't know that this Chinese company is a Hong Kong-based company, which effectively makes it uh, a subsidiary of the U.S., it's basically, or at least U.S. oligarchs. Mm-hmm. And so they, but this is the nuance that I feel like we need to make sure that we're discussing when we're talking about any involvement with really any country that goes into Africa with seemingly altruistic or magnanimous intentions. But outside of that, I feel like what China and Russia have been doing regarding specifically uh, dealing with NATO and allying 
at bare minimum, the allyship, I feel like, will keep any of them in check because the reason their strength comes from the unity they're getting largely from the global south. I would I would quickly take issue with you using the word altruistic mm-hmm. because this is business. Yeah, it's true. this isn't generosity. Nobody's doing anybody any favors here. But it's sold as altruism politically by a lot of leftists. That's oh, why okay. oh, okay. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Not that it is altruistic, but it's sold as altruism. And you know how leftists can be a little bit utopian, pie in the sky type people. Oh, gotcha. And they keep okay. mad with them. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I would put it to you like this. And here's the, the thing I see. The Africans should have the independence to make a decision as to who they want to do business with. Right now, the U.S. is going to these African countries saying, you better only buy wheat, mm-hmm. only buy um, gas from Russia, nothing else, or you'll be punished. Whereas Russia and China aren't saying that. Russia and China are saying, look, we'll do business with you, do business with whoever you want to. We'll sign. So the, I think the difference is that the U.S. empire traditionally tries to bully, control, and overthrow the governments mm-hmm. and stop them from having independence to do, you know, they kind of do the mafia thing as opposed to Russia and China tends yes. to say, let's make a business deal. Let's write it up. We'll see who gets the best out of this. Hopefully us. But we ain't going to overthrow your government and tell you what you can do. A minute and a half. Yeah. No, I mean, and I agree. And like, that's the that's the best thing you can do. And we just have to when we're, when we're talking about like the involvement in Africa, we want to make sure that their choices are, are not merely an illusion of choice because the U.S. comes in you know, destroys all the economic development that had previously taken place. And then whoever is the new leadership comes in and feels pressure to immediately recover or recoup on what was lost. And then you have situations where you become a little bit more vulnerable to predatory debt lending. And so that's the, that's the, that's the only thing that I would be a little bit more, but even still, the unfortunate reality is it's still better than what they had before, which is <laughs> give us all your minerals, give us all your gold, and we're going to kill you anyway. We're probably going to kill you. But we'll enslave you first. Think about that. Well, before we kill you, we'll yeah. enslave you. That's the altruistic part. <laughs> Nico, Nico House, thanks, man. Really appreciate it, as always. We look forward to having you back. Of course, man. Thank you, guys. Folks, you're listening to the Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Lee, and I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's another hour on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. Middle East Eye has a piece, their money, not ours. 9-11 families urge Biden to return frozen funds to Afghans. This, while, as we discussed earlier this week, over 70 economists say U.S. must return $7 billion of stolen money from the Afghan people. For insight into this, let's turn to our next guest. He's the national organizer for Action for Assange, Steve Poikinen. Steve, as always, welcome back. Thank you very much, gentlemen. So families of 9-11 victims have called on the administration of U.S. President Biden to release billions of dollars held by Afghan Central Bank in the U.S. In a letter sent to Biden on Tuesday, 77 family members of 9-11 victims called on the president to modify an executive order which froze the Afghan Central Bank's $7 billion of assets in the Federal Reserve, quote, 
any use of the $7 billion to pay off 9-11 family members' judgments is legally suspect and morally wrong. The family members wrote this in a letter to Biden. This while last Wednesday, a week ago yesterday, more than 70 economists and other academic experts sent a letter to Biden and to Janet Yellen saying, quote, we are deeply concerned by the compounding economic and humanitarian catastrophes unfolding in Afghanistan and in particular by the role of U.S. policy in driving them. Steve, those two stories to me are incredibly compelling and incredibly telling your thoughts, sir. Well, it, I, it underscores that the U.S.'s foreign policy is one uh, of exportation of what we've done here at home in terms uh, of the policy of civil asset forfeiture. We, we've outsourced that now. We've, we've outsourced going ahead and, and taking over small little organizations and making them much, much larger organizations and then giving them U.S. funding and training in order to become even more powerful organizations, which we then point at as our next new enemy. Uh, we're, we're doing all of these things right now as a continuance of longstanding policy. So it's not even that it's the Biden administration itself, but the neocon ghouls and uh, the, the neoliberal war hawks who believe on this in this model of of uh, economic success via empire expansion uh, that are allowing for the seizure of state and it's not just our seven billion dollars seven billion dollars that we're withholding the U.S. has convinced a couple of other uh, client states to withhold an additional right around two billion dollars too so it's closer to nine billion dollars that's being you know, robbed from, extorted, or held on to uh, uh, so that the Afghanis can't use it at home. Meanwhile, there's uh, Janet Yellen saying that, well, the United States doesn't have the authority to do this. And then, uh, and we're probably going to get into it too, um, but almost an equal dollar amount in abandoned military equipment that's just lying around Afghanistan for people to pick up and use. The other thing I think, and this is again with the whole Ukraine thing, the U.S. has taken this moral position. You know, we have a high moral position and we're doing what we're doing in Ukraine out of regard for democracy and the poor people of Ukraine and, you know, all of this moral crusade kind of crap. And people are looking at stuff like that and saying there's a contradiction here. You're claiming that you're doing whatever you're doing in Ukraine for these pious moral reasons. But when we look at what you did in Afghanistan and what you're still doing and people are starting to look at all of the things that the U.S. empire is doing in the world saying there's a contradiction between your claims in Afghanistan, your claims in Taiwan of some kind of moral upstanding support of democracy. There's a contradiction between that and your actions against these poor countries that are unable to defend themselves from your coercive economic powers. Steve. Well, you're absolutely right. And, and it's not just the seven billion in Afghanistan because there's six billion in Venezuela that can be pointed to. There's a legacy of American politicians taking their sons or daughters to work with them when they go overseas on these trips to, you know, encourage the the sanctity and security of democracy going forward in whatever nation. There's a the obvious um uh, I don't know, revolving door for uh, uh, a pile of money 
<laughs> I mean, just a pile of money for people who can get on the inside uh, of the uh, the never-ending war machine that now just picks up and moves locations all over the country like it's a, a risk board, not necessarily for conquest, but for perpetuation of its own existence in the region. There's another element of hypocrisy here as the United States is freezing Afghan assets in order to pay 9-11 family member judgments. But it wasn't the Afghan government that backed the 9-11 play. You know, that's where Osama bin Laden was hanging out in Afghanistan. But it wasn't the Afghanistan government that did this. And when you look at the passports of many of these hijackers, they were Saudis. But Joe Biden can go to Saudi Arabia and sell Saudi Arabia billions of dollars of weapons and beg Mohammed bin Salman for higher production of oil. But there seems to be some inconsistency here because if you're going to try to assign responsibility based upon individuals involved, you would seem to be closer to assigning more responsibility to Saudi Arabia than you would to Afghanistan. Well, and you would also be assigning responsibility to Pakistan, which is where the they had intel that uh, Osama bin Laden was prior to 9-11. That's where they eventually claimed that they found him was in Pakistan. The only reason that, that we went into Afghanistan in the first place was based on intelligence that said he was in the Tora Bora area. And mm-hmm. so that justified the takeover of the entire country. But for all actionable intelligence that placed Osama bin Laden anywhere with the U.S. military had friendly, quote-unquote, relationships with the government was inside of Pakistan both prior to and after 9-11 on multiple occasions. Joe Biden met with the head of Pakistani ISI right before 9-11. But that's not something that's, you know, talked about in even the independent media very much because there's a very tenuous relationship that the U.S. has with Pakistan as well. So it's, I mean, not only is it a massive hypocrisy when you look at it in terms of our relationship with the Saudis, the relationship with with MBS in particular, uh, not just in light of what they do to their own citizens with the ongoing largest man-made genocide in history in Yemen, uh, but it just, it, it underscores that the U.S., will work with whomever, justify whatever they do, turn around and drop them, Kissinger said. It's dangerous to be uh, our enemy, but it's fatal to be our ally. Well, the other thing is when you look at the American people versus the government, here's a perfect example that, you know, what we're discussing today. The government's like, let's steal the money from these poor people and we'll give it to the 9-11 families. And the 9-11 families have a higher moral standard. They're like, wait, whoa, 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 wait. That ain't our money. That's not fair. Give it back to those people. The people of the U.S., the average citizen, has higher moral principles than the so-called government that's leading them. Steve? There are species of animal that eat their own young that have a higher moral compass (laughs) than the average Congress critter. it's, It's, you know, it's a captured industry. It is. And because it's a captured industry, you get nonsensical, seemingly... Uh, you know, schizophrenic policy that is driven by corrupt and corrupted actors 
uh, and borderline, if not full-blown sociopaths. The, the people uh, who wrote that letter, the 9-11 victims' family, not only do they have a, a higher moral center, but they can tell, they can look at who's, you know, who the money is being stolen from, as, uh, as was mentioned, Wilmers, and say that wasn't even them. That's not, the Afghan government had nothing to do with this, and certainly not the current one, certainly not the people that you're holding money hostage from. What's wrong with you? And they're like, well, it's got to come from somewhere. We just gave $70 billion to Ukraine. So we can't do it there. Staying along the lines of the United States freezing assets or stealing money, Moscow warns of end to U.S.-Russia relationship if assets seized. Any possible seizure of Russian assets by the U.S. will completely destroy Moscow's bilateral relations with Washington, Tass quoted the head of the North American Department of Russian Foreign Ministry as saying last week. So that's just another example of the United States stealing assets. And I go back to this. Joe Biden on the campaign trail talked about leading with diplomacy. I don't think this is leading with diplomacy, stealing somebody's money. International civil asset forfeiture is not diplomacy. This is a practice that the U.S. has only been able to get away with at home because they maintain the monopoly on violence. But on the, the international scene, as has been proven over the last 20, 30, 40, 50 years, that monopoly on violence doesn't exist. So if you're trying civil asset forfeiture against a country that has the ability to say no or do something about it, it's going to be a very, very, very different result than when you're going after a, uh, you know, a celebrity or, or uh, an entertainer who's got away with a little bit on their taxes. Because that's effectively the exact same thing that they're trying to do here. And it's not going to work. The other part is the effect that it has on the world. You know, one of the big things that's happening now is the world is looking at the U.S., is looking at the U.K. saying, man, why should I store my sovereign wealth funds with you people? Because if you get angry at me, that money's gone. They have broken the contract. So one could argue it's not a financial institution anymore. You're not putting your money in a financial institution. You're putting it in a political institution and therefore the political liability outweighs the financial liability. I think they're killing their own economic system and their banking system. Steve? You're exactly right. They've replaced, uh, they've replaced whatever trust anyone thought they could put into a bank with whatever trepidation you approach a loan shark with. Uh, that's not going to be the way that they're going to be able to conduct international business. And this is going back to a point you made a little earlier. Pentagon estimates Taliban took control of over $7 billion in U.S. military equipment. The inspector general said this past Tuesday that the now-defunct U.S.-backed Afghan government had over $7 billion in U.S. military equipment at the time of its collapse, and most of it was seized by the Taliban. So when you take that and you add to it the whole discussion about weapons that the United States is sending into the Ukraine— and 30% of them aren't even making it to the battlefield. And then we wonder, well, how come the world is awash with weapons and many of them are being used to shoot at us? This is a money laundering deal gone bad. Well, not only is it a money laundering deal gone bad, but it's, it self-perpetuates the justification for the military. Bill Hicks did a long time ago, had a bit 
about the Iraq war. And he said, uh, George Bush ran on a platform of you have to elect me because the world has never been a more dangerous place. Well, buddy, you made it more dangerous. We, we have a list of receipts that we can go to and look at that prove that you being in power alone helped make the world a more dangerous place. Steve Poikinen, as always, thank you so much for your time. Greatly, greatly appreciate that analysis, and we look forward to having you back. Thank you very much, gentlemen. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour here on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon, here with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. Charges are coming down on officers who deliberately lied to obtain the warrant that ended with the death of Breonna Taylor. Joining us to discuss this, we have Dr. Marjorie Cohn. She's a professor emeritus at Thomas Jefferson School of Law in San Diego. Dr. Cohn, welcome back to The Critical Hour. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. In her great article, you can find it at consortiumnews.com. The title of the article is Police Lied to Search Brianna Taylor's Home. Dr. Cohn details why this case goes beyond the issue of a no-knock warrant and why those working to abolish the prison system did not celebrate the indictment. Dr. Cohn, your thoughts? Well, on in, in March of 2020, Brianna Taylor was killed with five shots um, fired by uh, one or more police officers in her own home, which they had entered in the mistaken belief that um, there were drugs there which had been delivered for her ex-husband, who was a drug dealer. And it turns out that the lie was... Um, based upon that belief, that uh, that was a false belief, that there were no drugs there and there hadn't been drug deliveries there. Um, so on August 4th, <clears throat> the Department of Justice announced that a federal grand jury had indicted um, four of the police officers involved in that raid that resulted in Breonna Taylor's death in Louisville. And three of the officers, well, all four of the officers were accused of violating her Fourth Amendment rights. Three of them were accused of violating the Fourth Amendment, which is the right to be free from unreasonable search and seizure, by lying to secure a no-knock warrant. And a no-knock warrant means that the police can just break in. They don't have to knock first and identify themselves as police officers. And in the lawsuit, in the indictment by um, this federal grand jury, it says that the officers who went to the judge to get the warrant, quote, knew that the affidavit used to obtain the warrant to search Taylor's home contained information that was false, misleading, and out of date, that the affidavit omitted material information, and that the officers lacked probable cause for the search, unquote. Um, One of the really interesting things about this case is that 
you know, there is a thing called the blue wall of silence Mm -hmm. where police officers lie to protect each other. They rarely come forward and tell the truth if it means incriminating a fellow officer. Um, One of the defendants in this case, one of the officers, tried to get another officer to lie and say that he had previously told the defendant that Taylor's ex-boyfriend, a drug dealer, had used her apartment to receive the packages. Um, But this officer apparently broke this police code of silence and told the prosecutors that his fellow officer asked uh, him to lie. And if that wasn't the case, then they may not have had... Um, they may not have had the uh, information that went into this indictment. So a judge did issue a no-knock warrant based on the officer's misrepresentations. Um, And although, as you said, this case has widely been characterized as a no-knock warrant case, and no-knock warrants are really dangerous because police just barge in, shoot whoever they see, um, and, you know, it, it leads to tremendous violence, murder, etc. But in this case, before the police actually conducted the search, um, the judge issued another warrant that did require them to knock and announce their presence. Um, the issue that led to the indictment of these officers is that the police officers lied to get the warrant. Has there been any information out about what they lied about yet, or is that still... Yes, yes. One of the defendants tried to get another officer to lie and say that he had previously told him that... Uh, Brianna Taylor's apartment was used to receive these these packages with drugs. Okay, yeah, I tell you why this is important, Doctor Cohn, because what we're often told is these are technical issues, they're training issues, they're administrative issues that can easily be dealt with. And this is a discussion of a no knock warrant. Should we have them? Shouldn't we have them? We got to stop all these no knock warrants. But here's the bottom line: if the people who are behind these things have a culture of corruption, because let's face it, lies are just another. Form of corruption, changing the training, changing the administrative procedures are not going to do anything. Holding people accountable for corruption is the only thing that can work. Real quick, when I was with the ACLU, I was actually working for the ACLU. There was an incident where the in Baltimore, like some random citizens did this. Don't you might have saw it on TV, this video. Don't snitch. Don't tell the police anything. And there was a big question about it. And I was asked on TV. They said, well, what do you think? Isn't that terrible? This don't snitch thing. And I said, yeah, they're getting bad as the cops with the blue wall of silence. They won't snitch. And they kind of laughed and then just kind of went to another thing. But what we're looking at is corruption here. Marjorie? Um, We're looking at corruption, but we're also looking at systemic racist police violence. And this um, goes way back to, of course, the founding of this country, founded on um, the extermination of First Nations peoples, the enslavement of Africans, um, the militarization of U.S. society, and the continued perpetuation of structural racism. So, you know, um, when a George Floyd incident happens or a Breonna Taylor incident, and it's clear that officers did something wrong, um, it is dismissed as oh, this is just a bad apple. These are just a few bad apples. But it's really the entire system, the criminal system, and I don't use the word justice, criminal justice system, because it is not just. The criminal system, the policing system, the prison system, the whole system is rotten and needs to be changed. Now, that does not mean that 
officers who murder people, particularly uh, in these cases, in, in all cases, but um, the, we're, we're talking about cases of black people being um, murdered and brutalized by cops, um, they need to be held to account. And um, the, the brutalization of black people who are targeted, surveilled, brutalized, maimed, and killed by law enforcement, um, that brutalization is compounded by impunity. Impunity means the officers get away with it. Most of them are never charged with a crime. And that is one of the reasons and probably the main reason that Tamika Palmer, Breonna Taylor's mother, applauded the federal indictment. She said, I've waited 874 days for today. Now, she did get a civil settlement of $12 million. She filed a civil lawsuit. Um, But None of these officers have been held criminally accountable. One officer, and this is the fourth officer who violated uh, Breonna Taylor's Fourth Amendment rights, but not for lying in the affidavit, but rather for firing 10 bullets into a bedroom and living room, and that is Hankison. Um, And uh, Officer Hankison was charged in Kentucky State Court. He was the only officer criminally charged. um, He was charged with wanton endangerment of neighbors, you know, by firing all these shots. He was found not guilty. Um, He's the only officer to have been charged with a crime. Now, these... um, and I should say in state court, these four officers who are accused by the Department of Justice could face many years in prison. Um, but I think um, you led by talking about some people not celebrating the indictment. And there are people f- from, for example, Louisville Black Lives Matter um, and uh, the co-founder who said she understands why people are calling for the, the arrest of these officers. She says, but, quote, if we're asking for the officers to be arrested, that's contrary to abolition work, unquote. So she's saying that we want to abolish the prison system, and therefore, why are we calling for officers to be sent to prison? Um, The abolitionist group Critical Resistance also has that same view, and they say that, um, you know, they talk about the prison industrial complex and and portraying killer and corrupt cops as bad apples rather than part of a regular system of violence, reinforces the idea that prosecution and prisons serve real justice. Well, it's true that real justice cannot come, full justice cannot come, without a full reckoning with the system itself, um, which is grounded in centuries of oppression. But in my opinion, that does not mean that these killer cops should not be charged with crimes and sent to trial and, if convicted, um, incarcerated. Um, The prison system, as much as this is a worthy goal to abolish the prison system, which is brutal, um, it's not going to happen tomorrow. Um, And defunding the police, not going to happen tomorrow. And in the meantime, these officers, which are, who are killing black people at at an alarming rate and brutalizing them um, will know that, well, you know, we're not going to be held accountable so we can continue to do it. in, 20, in March of 2021, um, there was a report, a 188-page report issued by the International Commission of Inquiry on Systemic Racist Police Violence Against People of African Descent in the United States. And I was one of the rapporteurs who drafted the report, and I think we've talked about this on one of your prior shows. And that commission, and there were 
12 commissioners from all over the world, um, heard testimony in the cases of 45 black people who had been, 43 of them um, had, there were 44 cases, 43 of them had been murdered, had been killed. The 44th, Jacob Blake, was left paralyzed. And um, we heard testimony from lawyers, from family members, from experts, from community activists about um, these cases, and very, very compelling testimony. We saw a lot of patterns um, that certainly did support the conclusion that this racist police violence against black people is systemic. Um, and we came up with a number of recommendations. Um, but uh, the, the commission did not conclude by saying uh, these cops should get off scot-free because the prison system is not what it should be. Um, there should be accountability and there cannot be impunity um, for these cops. In other words, they would be getting away with murder if they were not brought to justice. Now, that doesn't mean that that is complete justice. The entire system needs to be uh, completely revolutionized. But in the meantime, these cops have to be arrested and, uh, and jailed, in my opinion. Thank you very much. And I'm glad you brought up systemic issues, because when I said corruption, that's what I was referring to. I'm one who I agree with the people who say don't use this bad apples term because it protects the system. The bad apples business implies that there are individuals doing things wrong and that it's not systemic. I'd like to get you back again and speak on this again, because another big part of this is the war on drugs, is the argument this person's a drug dealer, all these black people are drug dealers, and there are a lot of black people. People right now in jail because they were accused or in the grave because they were accused of being drug dealers. So the drug war is another big part of this system that puts innocent people oftentimes or people who have, uh, you know, a little bit of marijuana or something on them and they're in jail for years. In fact, there's a guy in Mississippi, Alan Russell, is doing life for like an ounce and a half of marijuana. But thank you very much. We've been talking with Dr. Marjorie Cohn. She's a professor at Thomas Jefferson School of Law in San Diego and a friend of the show. Great article. Her article can be found at consortiumnews.com. It's called Police Lied to Search Brianna Taylor's Home. Make sure you find that article. Make sure you share it on all of your social media platforms. You're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon, with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. More on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to the Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. According to the Defense Post, 17 dead in Turkish or Turkey raids on Syria border posts. Turkish airstrikes on Syria border posts run by the regime forces killed 17 fighters on Tuesday, prompting the Damascus government to threaten retaliation. Quote, 17 fighters were killed in Turkish airstrikes that hit several Syrian regime outposts near the Turkish border, according to the Syrian Observatory for Human Rights. For insight, let's turn to our next guest. He hosts the podcast, The Left is Dead, James Carey. As always, James, welcome back. Always good to be here. 
So at least three Syrian soldiers were among the dead and six were wounded in the Turkish raids. This is according to the Sanaa News Agency. And any attack on a military outpost run by our armed forces will be met with a direct and immediate response on all fronts. James Carey, what's going on here and why? Well, I think there's quite a few factors at play. Um, Obviously, northern Syria has been a point of contention for the Syrian government, the Russian government, um, and the U.S. and NATO in general, and then uh, Turkey on its own. So four different you know, goals here in the region. And um, Turkey has tried to close in on, you know, the Kurdish forces in North Syria, but as with U.S. holding the oil field, with the U.S. holding the oil fields, Russia surrounding Idlib, where a lot of Turkey's supporters are, and all these other cities in the north, uh, the lines are starting to cross at this point, which was always going to be kind of inevitable. But um, Turkey has its own aims in the region, and I think they've worked something out with Russia as far as the Kurds go. And America, you know, we're going to leave them holding the bag. We all know that. So I think you're just seeing these operations sort of the inevitable result is Turkey is going to come up against Syrian government troops because there's no other way they can't without, you know, without Syria trying to clear out the Turkish supported rebels who have been occupying the north of the region or the north of the country for this time. What about, you know, there's some weird things going on. I know Turkey met with Iran and Russia in Iran recently. Um, Erdogan then went to Russia after that, you know, and I understand, you know, they've been working on things. Recently, the Turkish foreign minister called for reconciliation between the Syrian government and the opposition. So how does this play out when there's this friction going on around the border and at the same time Turkey's making overtures that it wants some level of reconciliation. What sense do you make of this, James? I think that is the the discussions with Russia and probably Iran to some extent. I think that, again, uh, the U.S. isn't doing anything about the YPG or the Kurdish forces in the north of Syria. Um, I think that Turkey isn't valuing the rebels in the north aren't winning much territory. They're not going to build anything strong up there. Um, I think even as you're seeing, like I said, the fighting may be coming to he- coming to a head where these two forces are butting up against each other. But I think diplomatically, Turkey is ready to acknowledge that things have basically been lost in Syria. I mean, there was riots last week because Turkish forces were saying saying they were going to pull their support for some groups. Um, so I think you're seeing Turkey kind of concede there and. They're obviously in a strange position. They're a NATO member, but they're making, um, you know, they're kind of alienated by NATO. They're kind of distrusted by Russia, but yet they're making deals with both. And playing in that little spot there, I think that they have something going on where Russia has tried to straighten out relations between them and the Syrian government. Uh, They need to do, Turkey needs to do business with Russia. Turkey needs to do business with Iran. Um, Turkey's economy is in the toilet right now. So they need everything they can get. I think that you're seeing that uh, that the war in Syria is over. I mean, we, we we've all known it's been over, but it's been a slow end, dragged out, you know, over the past five years or so. And uh, there's just nothing viable for Turkey up there. They can try and keep those rebels supplied as long as they want, but they won't last forever. According to the Middle East Eye, Turkey's Erdogan heads to Ukraine with a message of neutrality and influence. He is there today for the first time since the intervention to deliver the message that Ankara is approaching the conflict with a balanced policy and is still ready to host ceasefire talks. Your thoughts? Uh, Well, I think Turkey just sees, um, well, again, in a weird position to be negotiating with Russia and Western powers, right? And But at the same time, I think Turkey sees dollar signs in Ukraine. Uh, Turkey's been a large 
supplier of their military since 2014. Uh, Turkey, Erdogan's son-in-law was selling the drones that were killing Russian troops a couple of months ago. You know, they may still be at. Um, so uh, Turkey is now offering to rebuild in crucial infrastructure, bridges, roads, things like that, which will end up costing, you know, whoever, I don't know who's going to pay for it, but it's going to make Turkey money either way, which would be Erdogan's family-connected companies and things like that. I think that uh, with Russia being such a big part of the Turkish economy now that they just see Ukraine as sort of a way to make money, and Ukraine's obviously willing to take support from wherever they can get it. They don't care if you're, you know, you have no training or if you're a NATO government. You know, either one shows up, give them something, they'll take it. And Erdogan's pretty crafty. I'll give him that. I think he sees a way to make money either way out of this. Um, he's probably done selling the war machines to him, and now he'll sell the uh, rebuilding machines to him, you know? Do you think, in a way, I'm thinking this too, that Erdogan may be looking at Syria figuring, how can I end this? How can I clean it up, either by a massive attack on the Kurds or maybe an attack on the Kurds to kind of scare them into some level of negotiations or something like that, but that he could be looking at Syria, that these actual attacks in a kind of convoluted way could be a prelude to some kind of a deal to get that mess cleaned up there, that he may say, you know, let me get this business cleaned up and I can get back to making money. I don't know. Your thoughts? Yeah, I think he knows it's lost, right? I mean, the rebels have been surrounded forever, his rebels, and then you have the Kurds who the U.S. is really taking no position on. They're not pulling support from, you know, the parts of northern Syria with the oil, but there's no vocal support for the Kurdish forces anymore in the U.S. foreign policy establishment. Um, Erdogan knows that it's kind of over, and I think that after Trump left, there's nobody else to make a deal with over northern Syria. We remember he called Trump, and uh, Trump said he was going to pull all the troops out of Syria afterwards, and he never ended up doing that. But there's nobody for Erdogan to make a deal with. Obviously, they're trying, you know, they're holding up the Ukrainian membership of NATO, and chances are they'll continue to hold that up again when something happens. I think that... um, you just see Turkey really exerting itself. Uh, and Erdogan's got an election coming up next year. That's another big deal. So that's usually when invasions launch like this. Um, I think this may be something to show the Kurds that, look, nobody's coming. Yeah, you're right. I, nobody's coming. And you have to deal with either us or Russia. And, you know, you can negotiate through Russia with us. And I think that's Turkey's plan here is to just, if they're saying reconciliation is on the table, I think it's about over there. You're right. And I think that they're just trying to find a way to, both get the maximum political gain out of ending it and deal with the Kurdish question there. Well, that'll also give them political gain domestically. So Erdogan's got a tough election coming up. I mean, the economy, like I said, the economy is horrible. So this is something where you can flex a little bit of Turkish nationalism, flex Turkish like international diplomatic prestige. There's a lot to it, but uh, he's hoping to gain a lot from this, I think, and, and monetarily too. Zelensky, Erdogan, and UN Chief Gutierrez meet in Ukraine, the meeting in Lviv to address a political solution to this conflict. And we know that Turkey tried to do this twice before and it failed, but I think Turkey was successful in getting the uh, Ukrainian grain deal done. So on the peace side, he hasn't had any success, but on the grain side, he has had some success. Yeah, that's right. Turkey did uh, manage to foster the deal that uh broker the deal that fostered getting uh ukrainian wheat out of the ports there um that, again this is their new new ability which all really started when they shut down that russian jet over syria um they've had this new ability to ne- negotiate with russia since 
the NATO left them out in the cold, essentially. You know, they said, where's the strike against one is a strike against all mentality, and they didn't come, Obama didn't come to back them up. So Turkey's been put in a unique position to negotiate with Russia, and I think that it's odd because he was also touting his ally, you know, his alliance with Ukraine just two years ago is one of the most important ones. But at this point, uh, Russia is such a large part of the Turkish economy. Uh, Turkey's been frozen out of Western economies to some extent. Um, I think that there's nobody else. It's strange that he's ended up in this place, but I think that Erdogan may be moving from, say, military operations to try to gain political points at home to uh, big diplomatic achievements. And if that's going to be the case, working with Russia is going to be it. You know, I mean, they did so in um, Azerbaijan, too. You know, it was Turkey and Russia who got together to talk over that. So I think that, and you've seen it now in Syria, a war that the U.S. kind of backed and put the you know, fuel to the fire, and Turkey's the one negotiating the end to it. It seems odd, but our alienation of them has really done them a lot of favors on the international stage. You know, for all of his faults, you know, in a way I could kind of compare Turkey to like Lukashenko in the past in Belarus. He tried to, you know, play both sides of the fence, and that ended up closing in on him, and he made a decision and said, I'm going with Russia, they're next door. I think Erdogan, you know, kind of pursues anything that he feels will benefit Turkey or whatever his agenda is, but I think now he is practical, and he's looking at Europe, he's looking at next winter, he's looking at what's happening with the U.S. empire and saying, over the long run, I need solid economic foundation and I need to kind of go with who's going to be the winner. And I think he's a guy in talking to Iran, Russia, et cetera. He's looking to take Turkey in an easterly direction. Also, he's looking for the new bricks and SCMP stuff and all and saying that's where the future is. That's the direction I'm going just out of a practical selfishness, if you want to call it the practicality. James, I, I think to some extent, but I think he's going to continue to try and play both sides if he was, you know, Mm-hmm. The transition can never fully happen until he's out of NATO, obviously. Right. Um, but I think the thing is, yeah, the, it's it's also going to be a hard sell to go east to a lot of Turks because Turkish nationalism is a very strong current in the politics there. Erdogan himself embodies it to some extent. So I think you're going to see um, just a sort of still trying to balance and really look at it. Uh, look at how he did with the uh, expansion of NATO when they were talking about Sweden and Finland. He stopped that. He held it up for a moment, making demands of NATO. So I think you see him still trying to play both sides. But if something should happen, I don't know, maybe a more aggressive president here that's going to sanction them more or something like that, or by some, you know, by hook or by crook, they end up leaving NATO somehow, then I could see a full shift east. But it, the big requirement's going to have to be uh, leave leave NATO. And I think that they will, if they are forced to make a choice, yeah, they're going to go east. Because imagine if the IMF and World Bank came in right now with their currency, you know, inflated about 600%. The conditions they would enact there and enforce Turkey to enact on their own people wouldn't be pretty. So I think that if they're, that's why the U.S. is so careful with them, that we don't want to chastise them too much. Because if they go east, we lose a major military power, ground military in NATO. It is a major economic partner for Europe. But... If forced to do so, I mean, Turkey's not going to want the IMF when they can have, like, you know, China's development banking. And to that point, as we wrap this up, Erdogan seems to be a guy that doesn't have permanent friends or permanent enemies. He has permanent interests, which are Erdogan. Yeah. And this piece in Middle East Eye talks about since February, there's been this incredible flow of uh, Russian citizens to Turkey. 
and that that has uh, sparked more bilateral trade, which, of course, he needs. And so I think as he sits back and looks at the shifting landscape, he's determining, I'm going to try my best to keep the United States happy, but it looks like my money needs to go east. Yeah, I think that he sees that there's going to be, you know, this multipolarity that's kind of rising and China is going to be a big part of that, too. So I think that he sees that coming. And yeah, you're right. Erdogan is about Erdogan. The man's been in power for 20 years now. He knows what he's doing. You know, he changed the Constitution so his own prime minister would get fired and have less power, you know, have no power, basically, um, and made himself the president and gave that all types of executive authority. Uh, They've been under emergency measures pretty much until that happened. Um, So... Yeah, Erdogan's looking out for Erdogan, and Erdogan is looking out for Turkish nationalism. And if Turks feel that it's benefiting them, and maybe the more exposure to Russians like that is actually positive, because that could end a lot of sort of historic hostilities that have been there. So, yeah, I think that push comes to shove, you know, they'll leave. The F-35, the jet that, you know, Mm -hmm. falls apart and (laughs) kills the pilot, Yeah, they don't need that that much. They'll go east. James Carey, as always, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate that analysis. We look forward to having you back. Yep, thank you. Folks, you're listening to the Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. There's an interesting piece in Black Agenda Report entitled Trump Derangement Syndrome Returns. Progressive love the FBI? Leftists embrace the Espionage Act? Of course, one man is responsible for this madness, and he is none other than Donald J. Trump, the 45th president of the United States. For insight into this, let's turn to our next guest. She's the senior editor and senior columnist at Black Agenda Report and author of Prejudential, Black America and the President's Margaret Kimberly. As always, Margaret, welcome back. Thank you. You write, the fallout from the FBI search conducted at Trump's home shows the rank confusion spread by people who call themselves liberal but who are as dangerous as anyone on the right. From the moment that Trump announced the raid, they were in full fascist mode, even as they claimed to be fighting fascism. Margaret, also, you've got a matter of confusion from those on the right who were challenging the defund the police movement, but they're now calling (laughs) the the FBI. Defund defund the other police. They don't know. Isn't that convenient? Margaret. (laughs) Go ahead. Only Trump can do this to people. It's true. I mean, the people on the right, the Marjorie Taylor Greens and and so forth, they don't really uh, dislike the FBI. They just love Trump, and they don't like him being targeted. That's all. Um, so they're being hypocritical, as you point out. They're always shrieking about the defunding of, of the police, which actually never happened, by the way. <laughs> um, but, uh, uh, yeah, progressives, uh, uh, Democrats just cannot get over Donald Trump, and they insist on letting him live rent-free in their heads. 
So, yes, this is a major news story. A, a, a president of the United States, FBI, getting search warrants uh, for a, a former president of the country. But when you consider it's Trump, it's not surprising. I mean, nobody knows what's in these documents. We, we don't know. But I wouldn't be surprised if it turned out not to be that serious, because a lot of this is Trump just being Trump. No, they're mine, you know, according to uh, to news reports. And so he would uh, make this claim, make himself a target, not be able to get out of his own way, as he is uh, uh, wont to do. But um, immediately... Uh, people went um, overboard. So, for example, uh, uh, one of the reasons given for the search is that it has something to do with the Espionage Act. We don't know what that means. We do know what the Espionage Act is, though. It's a relic of 100 years ago from Woodrow Wilson, from the Palmer Raids, that was used to persecute people on the left, that Obama has used to uh, prosecute whistleblowers and journalists. So no one should defend the Espionage Act. Um, and, uh, you know, despite the fact that no one knows what's in it, all we get are leaks, that there's something nuclear going on. We don't know what that means. So right away, people say he's selling secrets, he's a traitor, he sold something to Putin, he sold something to Saudi Arabia. Nobody knows what's in it. But I all I can remember is being told for years about the Steele dossier, which it turned out was paid for by the DNC's law firm and which was made up out of whole cloth. And I remember being told that his lawyer had been to Prague and met with Russians. The man had never been to Prague. I mean, I could go on and on with all the things said about Trump, which turned out to be nothing, or his taxes. We need to see his taxes because it will show that Russian oligarchs gave him money. Well, now we've seen his taxes. Did we see that? No, we didn't. But we do see people who have been uh, confused by years of... Um, of this uh, uh, witch hunt meant, and not to get Trump for any reason that people should want to get Trump either. It's just to defend the Democratic Party. So you have people who should know better um, uh, praising the FBI, the same FBI who uh, wiretapped Martin Luther King and told him to kill himself, uh, the same FBI that still entraps uh, black people and Middle Eastern people and claiming they're terrorists, that none of these people, including Trump, deserve anybody's praise. But the other thing is every time Trump is in the news, it lets the Democrats off the hook. Nobody's talking about Biden's failures uh, nobody's talking about what appears to me increasing cognitive decline. Everybody wants to talk about Trump again. You know, it's a perfect example of what you're saying. I saw, and this was a black person on Facebook yesterday saying, why would anybody ever plead the fifth or not talk to the police if they weren't guilty? And my response was, I used to teach. I taught at Salisbury State University, and I taught at UMES, University of Maryland Eastern Shore, which is a black college on the Lower Eastern Shore of Maryland. And I taught this course of, abbreviated course, how to deal with the police for young people, young people of color, a lot of them. And what did I teach him? Never answer questions. You simply say, 
am I being detained or am I free to leave? If you ain't free to leave, I don't answer any questions. You'll have to refer any questions to my attorney. This is in the best interest of young people, of black people, of people who have faced day-to-day dangerous situations with the police. And now we have people saying, why wouldn't you talk to the police if you weren't guilty? The exact opposite thing that we need to, to teach young people who have to deal with these issues and end up twisted into confessing for crimes as we've seen before over and over or persecuted for crimes such as the Central Park Five for things that they didn't do when they need to just learn how to be quiet. Your thoughts? Absolutely. There's two things. There's these propaganda TV shows uh, where police say, we'll go easy on you if you tell us the <laughs> truth. Well, they just arrest They arrest you if you tell them anything. And the, uh, the Fifth Amendment is one of the most important aspects of American law. And you are absolutely right. It's something we should treasure and something we should all keep in mind should we ever be in that moment. Now, part of it is Trump himself said something like that right. about someone else. Why would you take the fifth? Said it about Hillary Clinton. Guilty? Yes, he did. So, but who cares what he says? On the one hand, people hate him and scorn every word out of his mouth, and then they'll take one of his stupid comments and decide to live by it. So, I, I just hope I. I I know this is going to this is going to go on for a while. We don't know how long, but uh, we're going to be living again with this Trump derangement and people saying things that, at the very least, don't make any sense, and at worst, are a danger to the democracy that they all claim to be upholding. You wrote a great piece, and one of the things that you tied together, you just talked about the Espionage Act, and then you write Barack Obama used it more than all previous presidents combined in order to prosecute journalists who published what the state didn't want us to know. Yes, absolutely. The Espionage Espionage Act is horrible. And now uh, some people on the right are saying we should get rid of it. Now, they never said that before. So once again, it's about Trump. It's about them uh, supporting Trump. But I don't care about that. The rest of us should look at the Espionage Act and how it has been used, how it has been uh, misused. It is not something that anyone should be uh, defending for any reason, especially since we have no idea what's in these, uh, these documents. So, you know, but this is what happens when people don't really have a political grounding and um, uh, nothing has thrown them off kilter or rather no one as much as Donald Trump has done. Uh, so ever since he won, I, I would still say that Trump's election was a trauma. It really traumatized people. And I, I really think this desire to get Trump to see him in jail, people are still mad at him for winning. Uh, I don't even think it's about January 6th. So even January 6th, these legal experts can't decide what a charge would be in that case. So we need to let go of Trump and concentrate on pushing forward on those issues that are important to us. And that means not important to the Democratic Party, but a lot of these people are just a bunch of reformers. Uh, They like the Democrats no matter how many, no matter uh, uh, what they do, like Obama's use of the Espionage Act. 
So Trump is just very convenient to them. The other thing, you know, I mean, I started screaming as soon as the FBI raided the African People's Socialist Party in St. Petersburg. Then they raided Trump. And I was saying to people, see, you know, I said to conservatives, see, you guys didn't say anything when they raided the African People's Socialist Party. You kept your mouth shut. And, you know, a lot of people said they have not violated the law. They're not even accused of violating the law. You know, they're socialists. That's the violation of the law. And they're black. And that don't help either. But as soon as they went after Trump, these people woke up. And I simply say, I don't care who it is. I'm not a fan of Trump by any stretch of the imagination. But over the long term, the FBI's record is clear. They are like the Ministry of Law Enforcement for the government that has been used against dissenters and against anyone that the state doesn't like. They're the secret police of a totalitarian state. And they're not so secret, Margaret. No, you're right about that. They're not so secret. Uh, we still don't know what's in all the files about COINTELPRO. Um, uh, so this has been, this sort of thing has been going on for de- almost 100 years. You know, they got uh, Marcus Garvey, mm-hmm. who, like, like me, he was born August 17th. Um, J. Edgar Hoover was a young FBI agent. He's the one who concocted the charges against him. Uh, this and and this went on for decades and still still goes on. So before anybody starts singing the praises of the <laughs> FBI, we need to just be patient, see what's in these documents. It, are they major? Are they minor? We don't know. We don't know. And there's not. And that's the other thing. I wish people would just say, you know what? We don't know anything yet. There's not a lot to say. But um, that doesn't uh, get clicks. Uh, or get ratings on the news, or uh, get rid of anybody's Trump fixation. And one thing you got to know about that group, any assertion or allegation against Trump is immediately treated like a conviction. No matter what they say, well, Trump's accused of, ah, we knew he did it. It's automatically a conviction. <laughs> well, sure. And Russiagate, the, uh, the, the charge of Russia co- Russian collusion has been disproven. But most people won't admit it, actually, because of uh, the way the media has framed the story, don't even know it. But this, this, you know, charge of treason and collusion has been disproven completely and thoroughly. But it's something that people fall back on because and I always felt that Russiagate was in a way comforting to people. It explained away the fact that 60 million Americans voted for Trump. It explained away the fact that the smarty pants Democrats who thought he'd be the easiest to beat uh, lost to him. Uh, they, you would have to face the fact that Hillary Clinton was the worst person to run against him. All that time she spent cooking up uh, plots to, spear, to smear him. She should have been uh, uh, running a get-out-the-vote effort. So Maybe she should have gone to Michigan. Maybe she maybe. should have gone to Pennsylvania. <laughs> maybe she should have gone to Wisconsin. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, how about that? <laughs> Going to sw- ignoring swing states, you know. I mean, who does that? Hillary Clinton. So that's. I think that's another reason that people can't let go of it. They don't have to face these things that are true, but uh, that give them discomfort. So where do you think in the, in the minute that we have left, where does this take us for November? Well, it's hard to say. I think anytime Trump is attacked, his people become uh, more um, uh, in love with him. So they are now focused on supporting him, supporting the candidates that he has endorsed. 
Uh, Democrats, I, I don't know if anybody other than the dead-enders who are already going to vote uh, will do so. I think it's going to depend on some of the more basic things, the economy, inflation, uh, uh, Ukraine, uh, all of these things that have that Biden has uh, mishandled, all of the, the lies he told during his campaign, the things people want that he has not acted on. I think that will uh, determine whether Democrats come out. Uh, or not, but Republicans definitely will be energized by this. Margaret Kimberly, as always, thank you so much for your time. Great, great piece in Black Agenda Report. Trump derangement syndrome returns. Look forward to having you back. Thank you very much. And happy birthday. (laughs) Thanks. You've been listening to the Critical Hour here on Radio Sputnik. Thank you for allowing our voices into your space. On behalf of myself and my co-host, Garland Nixon, we hope you were informed and enlightened, and we look forward to talking with you all right here tomorrow on Radio Sputnik. Be safe. Peace and blessings. We're out. 